Thank you for joining us for the sermon podcast of Northwest Presbyterian Church in Dublin, Ohio. Our church exists to celebrate the gospel through Christ-centered study, worship, and prayer, to connect in community through fellowship, accountability, shepherding, and outreach, and to love our city through sacrificial giving of time, treasure, and talents so that it might flourish as a place where Jesus is known. For service times and more information about our church, visit npcdublin.org. And now, Pastor Dave Shooter. We are um, approaching the halfway point of our series in Thessalonica, at least by chapter, if not by sermon count. Uh, So uh, we have come to an important section where Paul connects his insistence uh, that God works through his word, uh, which we looked at last week, to his goal for the Christians to grow healthily while waiting for Jesus's return. This is Paul's goal for the letter. Uh, He expresses it at the end of chapter 3 in a prayer that he makes for the uh, Thessalonian church. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of the Lord Jesus with all his saints. Now there's a lot going on in that prayer. What Paul wants for the Christians uh, is because the return of the king is certain uh, that they would grow in their love for each other. And he actually uses a, a, a compound of superlatives there. He wants their love to super abound for each other and also for the outside world that healthy Christians are growing in love for each other. Healthy Christians are growing in love for the world in which God has placed us and growing in holiness before our God and Father. And so you could imagine healthy Christians increasing in love for each other in the world, sharing God's gospel with the world would lead to a better world. Uh, And yet, if you are a follower of Jesus, you may already feel the tension which Paul is going to need to work through for these Christians. That a growing concern and care and love for the world that needs to know the Lord will lead to more obedience to God's word and more sharing of God's world in the world that will be provoked by the sharing of the, of the word, if that makes sense. That, that, that as a Christian's care for the lost increases so that the gospel is shared, uh, oftentimes the sharing of the gospel will be provocative. And this is something that Paul needs to work through, this paradox uh, that we need God to make us brave to share his word to the world for the good of the world, even though the world might be hostile to what we share. So how should this tension be overcome? Well, Paul is going to say in these short verses here at the end of chapter 2 that we do this in dependence on God's Word, that God's Word is essential to build up and to sustain and to nurture God's people. And it has been this way since God spoke His first word uh, of life and of death to Adam and to Eve, and none less than God's own Son was dependent upon God's word. We think of the temptation of the Lord Jesus, for instance, that when he was hungered by fasting, the tempter came to Jesus and he said, if you are the son of God, 
command these stones to become loaves of bread. And to the tempter, Jesus quotes God's word on the necessity of God's word. But he answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. It's significant that when tempted by suffering and tempted to shortcut his way around God's plan, God's own son was word dependent. So surely you and I are every bit and more word dependent. And Paul needs to encourage the Thessalonian Christians uh, that God works by his word despite opposition that they were experiencing for obeying and for sharing his word. It's interesting that the Thessalonian Christians had known Paul and his friends and had heard Paul and his friends preach and teach uh, for some short period of time between two to four weeks. Uh, Paul says that he was active in Thessalonica for three Sabbaths. So it could be as short as two weeks or as long as four weeks, but in any case, less than the time that it takes the Cleveland football team to drop from contention. That is how much, how much time Paul had with these Christians. And yet, he says, our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. And this word for conviction describes full assurance, certainty, not only of intellectual truth, uh, but also a truth that has been assimilated, truth that has been personally uh, grasped onto, uh, that the Thessalonians had been convinced in this short period of time that what Paul and his friends were preaching was God's word. Faith, he writes elsewhere in Romans, comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. And I mentioned that time frame in part because uh, some of us who are more uh, skeptical by nature might think, well, you know, two to four weeks is not long enough to really come to certain conclusions about someone, what someone is saying. You know, perhaps they should have enjoyed a longer period of investigation. Uh, some of you might be on a longer period of investigation. Some people uh, will unfortunately spend their entire spiritual journey only investigating uh, and never concluding. And what I want to point out to you is that God worked in such a way that these Thessalonians uh, came to full conviction and assurance about what Paul was teaching and preaching as the Word of God in a short period of time. He can actually create faith in a nanosecond. That's what Paul says in Romans 10, that faith comes uh, by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. And so my prayer this week has been that, that some of you will come to full assurance today. Some of you who have been on journey, some of you have been seeking, you've been asking questions, uh, and you've been pondering uh, that perhaps in the Lord's kindness, today will be the day that you understand that the word of the gospel is God's word, and it must be believed. And that others of us who have believed will be renewed because we need to understand what Paul is saying here, that we are word-dependent people. And that as we grow in our understanding of our dependence on the word, as Paul instructs us, that we'll be convinced enough to prioritize the hearing and applying of God's word, 
that will be emboldened to share God's word with others, that will seek God's word when we need comfort, and that we will be convinced that God works through his word. And here, I think, is, is our path through these verses this morning. First, word acceptance is what God uses to produce transformation. Word opposition is normative, and word proclamation is essential. So let's uh, study these verses together. First, God works through his word. Word acceptance produces transformation. Verse 13 of chapter 2 is short and important. Paul writes, we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. It was curious to me throughout the week uh, that Paul's gratitude in this case, he's grateful for other things in other places, but his gratitude in this place was for how the Thessalonians heard and responded to the word. Uh, that they are apart from each other. Uh, they, they had only a short time together. Uh, Paul had to send Timothy back to them to communicate and to understand how they were doing. Uh, but in the midst of all of these challenges, he's thankful for how they heard and uh, received and accepted the word. And they heard and received and accepted the word as Paul says, it really is the word of God. Two observations. First, New Testament Christians understood that what the apostles preached was the word of God. That it, that it was the word of God as much as what God had Moses write down in the Torah. That it was the word of God as much as David sang in the Psalms. That it was the word of God as much as the prophets preached. That it was the word of God as much as the parables Jesus told. That the apostolic message that is found in the New Testament is the word of God. That, that, that they did not just agree with the apostles that there was a new and interesting religion on the scene. That they not, did not just agree with the apostles that the philosophies of Jesus were in, interesting. Uh, that they did not just agree with the apostles that the ethics of Jesus could be helpful. But that they agreed with the apostles that the gospel of Jesus that was preached was itself the word of God. And they accepted it secondly. They accepted it not simply as passive information, but as God's active and divine power. That God's word is more than informative. It is informative. It is also transformative. By his word, God tells us what he needs us to know about himself, what we, he needs us to know about life and death, and sin, and grace, and salvation, and now, and the future. He doesn't tell us everything that we'd like to know. He doesn't answer every question we might have, but he tells us what he has decided in his counsel is essential, and that it is not only informative, but it is also transformative. And this is how they responded to the word. They accepted it. They were receptive of it. The word describes being open to it. It's a, it's a personal word. It's a whole soul word. Jesus' brother James uses the same word to describe how self-absorbed people receive God's word in James 1.21. He says, therefore, 
put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. This word meekness is curious. It's curious, I think, uh, because it is so counter to the spirit of our age. It's so counter to our age, which is so impressed with ourselves. And we are just catechized constantly to be impressed with ourselves. And the word meekness describes the opposite. It describes not being overly impressed by a sense of one's self-importance, of gentleness, humility, courtesy, considerateness. And in our highly individualized culture, which prizes individual autonomy uh, over all things, uh, the word meekness critiques us. Because sin becomes indefinable. Not only does sin become indefinable, but really happiness becomes indefinable uh, when the goal of life is just to do what I want when I want to do it according to my own terms. And, 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 and uh, if that is the ultimate authority, no wonder we get so confused. Because we're really just making ourselves our own authority. But Paul says we're, we're to receive God's word and accept it. James says we're to receive it with meekness, humility, considerateness. We're to receive it by accepting and being open to and being underwhelmed by me and overwhelmed by the word as God comes and speaks to us. So one way that reformation will come to a church in our highly individualized, highly autonomous culture is to receive the word with, we- with meekness, to put ourselves under the authority of the word as opposed to elevate ourselves above the authority of the word. And the good news that Paul uh, describes for us is that God works through his word to produce transformation. So, so we ought not to be afraid when we put ourselves under the authority of God's word. There are, are at least three kinds of transformations which he has identified for us already in Thessalonians. First, character transformation. In verse 3 of chapter 1, Paul says that we're, that we're remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Faith, hope, and love. The cardinal Christian virtues. That, that these are being produced in the Thessalonians as they place themselves under the authority of God's word. Character transformation. But also conduct transformation. Verse 9 of chapter 1. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. So there was a transformation of conduct that was observable to the Thessalonians' neighbors as they responded to the gospel. As they responded to the gospel, their neighbors looked at their lives and said, hey, you're different. You're living differently. 
I, I, I notice that you're not engaging in the same things that you used to engage in, the same worship of idolatry, the, the, the same engagement with the, the, the culture at large, that you're behaving differently. Now, in point of fact, they were put off by that, the neighbors were. They, they didn't celebrate it. They didn't throw a party for the Thessalonians and say, isn't it great that your conduct is transformed? They said they, they, they got mad at them because the, the transformation of the Christian's conduct critiqued the world. But Paul says it was evident that God was at work not only to transform their character, but also their conduct. And, and then thirdly, it transformed their expectations. Verse 10 of chapter 1. So they turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. That, that God had transformed the horizon of their expectations. That they were no longer just content to live for the moment. That they were no longer satisfied to live uh, for just the next thing. But that their expectation, their hope was rooted uh, on Jesus' return. That, that they were looking further than either the good things of their present moment or the challenges of their present moment. Because we know that there were challenges in their present moment. That's why Paul writes the letter. That they were able to look beyond that and to say that the horizon for our expectations has been transformed. So it is working in their character, in their conduct, and in their expectations. So, so let me ask you, has God through his word transformed your horizon of expectation? And, and the reason why I land on that is because we live in a good place. And there's lots of good things. And there's, there's massive good opportunities before us. And it's easy just to hope right in these good things. And they are good. We're not going to call what is good bad. But we are going to say it, it's not sufficient to set our horizon of expectations just on the next good thing. That, that, that Christians are people who live now and for the future. That, that it... it it should be, I think, that as we go through our days, that as we meet our neighbors, as our neighbors have the same ups and downs and variabilities of human life as we encounter them, that there is something about our hope that is compelling, that there's something about what we are looking for that's bigger than the solution to the problem of the moment, whatever the problem of the moment is. Be it a personal problem, be it uh, 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 a current events problem? Say, so, yeah, I, I see that problem and I look for God to work and I hope he works and I pray he works, but that's not where my hope ultimately lands. He's transformed my expectations. I, I have a future that he's taking me to. Has he transformed your expectations? I don't know. I don't know. I hope he has, because what do we need when our faith is wavery? What do we need when our love for God and others cools, when the horizon of our hope is right here? When, what, what do we need when we can't see tomorrow? 
What Paul says, what, what you need when you can't see tomorrow is you need God through his word, transforming your character and your conduct and your expectations. But what do you need when idols allure and make empty promises for meaning that they can't deliver because ultimately you're the one who invests the idol with meaning? I mean, that's the, the, the big lie of idolatry is idols are just what we create. And we're like, hey, hey, idol, whatever it is, I'm going to invest meaning in you. And then when it doesn't deliver, you know, we're disappointed by the idol, but we're really disappointed in ourselves. We're disappointed that we weren't really in control like we thought we were. What do we need? Paul says we need word. Where will you get God's word? Where will you get God's word? Well, that's a obvious question, Dave. Clearly, clearly you underpaid for your seminary education. <laughs> well, you do get God's word by reading God's word. But even more specifically and surprisingly, the answer from our spiritual uh, forefathers and foremothers is this. Let me offer it to you for your consideration that the spirit of God makes the reading but especially the preaching of the word, an effectual means of enlightening, convincing, and humbling sinners, of driving them out of themselves and drawing them unto Christ and of conforming them to his image and subduing them to his will, of strengthening them against temptations and corruptions, of building them up in grace and establishing their hearts in holiness and comfort through faith unto salvation. It's a, a fascinating observation because again, we're, we're Americans and we're highly individualistic people. And there is a, a school of thought or temptation. That's like, if I just get in the corner with my Bible, you know, just me versus the world. And while we wouldn't want to downplay the importance of daily Bible reading, what our forefathers would say to us is it's very possible to downplay the significance of worship gathering to hear the word preached. And, and it is the preaching of the word that the Spirit especially makes useful in all of the ways enumerated. More on this in point three when we think about why word transmission, word proclamation is essential. But before we can be reminded about why word proclamation is essential, Paul needs to teach us uh, that word opposition is normal. This is the second po point. Paul works through his word. I mean, God works through his word. Word opposition is normal. The word that produces transformation in Christians provokes opposition by unbelievers. We don't live in a spiritually neutral world. And, and if, if we can just uh, agree to that, that will help us make much sense of what we encounter. That, that, that the world is not a spiritually neutral place. That we have a spiritual opponent who is not happy with God, not excited about Jesus, and not a big fan of his people. And so Paul needs to normalize opposition to God's word for the Thessalonians. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out. 
So the first Jewish Christians who accepted by faith God's word experienced opposition by their neighbors. In Acts 4, uh, Acts is kind of the, the history of the first generation of the church. Uh, in Acts 4, Peter and John are arrested for preaching the word by the same council that tried and executed Jesus. And in Acts 5, the apostles are re-arrested, tried, beaten, freed, and, and then they just gave up. No, they, they didn't just give up. This is actually how the story reads. They beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they, the apostles, left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the, that the Christ is Jesus. I mean, can you imagine, like, just picture you're one of the members of the ruling council for a moment. I mean, that'd be like a crazy maker. Like, we've arrested you twice. We, we, we beat you. We told you to not do this. And, and you're here every day. Would you just stop? Go away. We can't stop. And by the way, we consider it an honor to be dishonored for the name of Jesus. So that's a question that we have to wrestle with. Are we comfortable with being dishonored for our faith in Jesus? One commentator notes that, that Paul explains that the same kindred spirit exists between the Judean Christians uh, and the Thessalonian Christians. So uh, the, the Christians in what we know as Israel and the Christians in what we know as Greece, that this kinship exists between them because the Judean church is, uh, as he says in verse 14, of God in Christ Jesus. And the Thessalonian Christians are as he says in the beginning of the letter, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, the Thessalonian Christians are by the Spirit united to the Lord Jesus. And the Judean Christians are by the Spirit united to the Lord Jesus. So they are not only in union with Jesus, but they're in communion with each other. That, that Jesus is building a global church. And in this communion that believers have with each other, that it's normal for Christians to share in the communion of suffering for the name of Jesus. That word opposition is normal. Paul is normalizing it. And here, here's a thought for maturing Christians here today from another pastor. Uh, quoting, when God's word is at work in the lives of all believers, it is not surprising that it produces a family likeness. God's word within is doing the same sort of work, enabling believers to imitate Jesus. Well, that's good so far. So it's natural, he continues, that believers will experience what happened to him, end quote. Here's, here's the application that I was pondering as I thought about that. The, the more God's word shapes us into imitating Christ, the more opposition we may expect to encounter. I don't I don't want this for you. I don't wish it for myself. Really, my dream in life is just to be able to sit in my brown chair and, and read books. So, uh, so, so what, I'm not like wishing this for us. But Paul is instructing this for our maturity. 
So the more you mature in the Christian faith, and the longer your non-Christian friends don't, the stranger you're going to seem to them. It's just going to happen. So don't take it personally. You seem strange to them because Jesus is strange to them. He's a stranger to them. But he's in, living inside of you by the power of his spirit. So two, don't stop loving them because Christ loved you when you were a stranger. And Christ loved me when I was a stranger. And thirdly, normalize your expectations. Opposition is normal. And the Thessalonian Christians were to learn from the courage of the Judean Christians. And I think there's a good lesson for us as American Christians. American Christians can learn from the courage of Christians in other parts of the world, uh, experiencing more stress for faith in Jesus. Um, Speaking of sitting in my brown chair reading books, I, I, I got a really interesting book. Let me tell you about it. Um, you're like, I'm here anyway. Um, it's, a, it's a book of sermons written by contemporary Chinese pastors uh, and, uh, and written, you know, preached uh, just in the past couple of years. And, um, you know, so from the onset of the pandemic in a completely different culture where opposition to the Christian faith is much more pronounced. And I have found reading these sermons to be really humbling. And, and here's why. Because in these sermons, they, these pastors identify facing some of the same pressures, pandemic uncertainty, and some different and more intense pressures from the culture in which they live. And the sermons read very similarly to sermons preached here by our pastoral team. And you're like, well, why is that humbling? Well, what's humbling is not that the content is widely different. What's humbling is at least my perception of widely different word expectation. That, that in a setting where gathering for corporate worship is not highly possible, where many of the niceties of Christian community are not easily achievable, that the perception of reading these sermons is that they think preaching and hearing God's word is enough. That it's what they need. That it's what they're dependent on. That, that if they didn't have anything else, the, the, the pastors would preach the word to them and they would want the word preached to them. And what's humbling is, is I, I want that to be true not only for us at NPC, but I, I want that to be true for the, the churches in our country. Because 25 years of ministry, mostly in the American context, teaches me that word proclamation is a nice accessory to many other things that can happen in church. But it ought not to be that way. That, that many of the other things that we do in church that are really helpful and good and wonderful for building community, that, that, that many of those things are the nice accessories. But, but, but if it all got boiled down, and, and if you could only do one thing, and, and if you, you didn't have a small group, 
And if you couldn't have a youth group, and if you didn't have a building, if you could meet and have the word preached and the sacraments administered, you would have enough. You would have enough, and I would have enough. That, that opposition to these things is normal, that the word is essential, which makes, thirdly, word proclamation essential. God works through his word. Word proclamation is essential. For you, brothers, repeating, uh, but by design, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus who were in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved, so as always to fill up the measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon them at last. Stern words from the apostle through which we learn that word proclamation is essential, first, because word hindrance is accountable. Opposition to word proclamation is not neutral. That God holds accountable people who actively oppose and work against proclamation. That's just what he says. It's a sobering thought. Working to hinder word proclamation displeases God. God's word tells of his glory, his holiness, his rightness to judge, and his mercy to save. And his divine commission, and therefore his divine pleasure, is for his gospel to be shared to all the nations. Moreover, and paradoxical to the spirit of our age, hindering word proclamation actually opposes humanity. Think about that for a moment because it really it recalibrates our thinking. It actually turns kind of the, the popular perception of word proclamation uh, 180 degrees in the opposite direction. I mean, what we hear are things like, you know, the Christian gospel is restrictive. The Christian gospel is bad news. That, that the Christian lifestyle is outdated. That the Christian worldview won't stand the test of common sense, that God's law is restrictive to personal freedom, that the Christian doctrine, that the doctrine of the Lord Jesus crucified and risen is foolish to contemporary wisdom. And insisting on the gospel is essential to humanity puts one on the wrong side of the history. Or what's really dangerous is not sharing the gospel. What's, what's really in opposition to humanity is hindering gospel proclamation. Now, I'm not suggesting that we be artless or loveless as we do it. Be prayerful. Share the gospel with real care to real people that you know, that you have real relationships with. Take the time to answer questions. Be transparent. Find out about their objections. And when you don't know something, say, I don't know. And, and when they have a hurting heart, love them. Tell them how much Jesus loves them, so much that he died to take a hell's worth of judgment away from them. But don't be afraid to share the gospel with them. And when someone says, well, you can't share the gospel, say, well, I think I can. Uh, 
And I, I do want to mention the phrase, so as always to fill up the measure of their sins, because that sounds confusing. Well, Jesus uses the same expression in Matthew 23 to describe the hypocritical word rejection by the Pharisees of the prophets, uh, saying, if we had lived in the days of our, this is Jesus saying what the Pharisees would say, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in the shedding of the blood of the prophets. Therefore, you witness against yourselves, Jesus says, that you are the sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers. In other words, people would look back on history and say, well, of course we would have believed Isaiah. Of course we would have believed Jeremiah. And Jesus is like, I'm the son of God and you're not believing me. And so you are, you are filling up, so to speak, the measure of your fathers. As the apostles were to the prophets, divinely ordained messengers of God's word, so uh, the rejection of the prophets filled up the father's rejection of the word over time. It's a stark warning. Don't reject the word. Word proclamation is essential. And Paul shows us why in verse 16, describing the experience of the Christians that they were driven out, that this displeases God and opposes all mankind. Why? By hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. This is an important comment on why word proclamation is essential. Word proclamation is how outsiders hear the gospel that they might be saved. Proclamation pleases God and is for the benefit of all mankind, which brings us back to the point that I alluded to earlier about engaging with the reading and especially the preaching of the word. Heinrich Bullinger. Heinrich is not a name that we hear very often. Um, it's a fine name. We could call him Hank. Hank Bullinger, because Heinrich is to Henry is to Hank, right? Uh, Hank Bullinger, leading Protestant reformer in Switzerland, writing the, the second Helvetic Confession, describes the import of the preaching of the word this way. The preaching of the word of God is the word of God. Wherefore, when this word of God is now preached by the church, by preachers lawfully called, we believe that the very word of God is proclaimed and received by the faithful, and that neither any other word of God is to be invented nor is to be expected from heaven, and that now the word itself which is preached is to be regarded, not the minister that preaches, for even if he be evil and a sinner, nevertheless the word of God still re remains still true and good, end quote. Which, which means, so let's, let's make it applicable to, to what happens Sunday by Sunday in pulpit by pulpit across the world when God's lawfully ordained ministers stand and open up his book and preach the word of God, God is speaking And it's not about the preacher. And it's not about whether he's funny. And it's not about whether he's attractive. Uh, not about whether he's got fancy clothes. Not about whether he's got 
anything other than a, a divine commission to preach the Word of God, which means that this should shape our expectations when we come together. It's interesting. Our, our catechism has a whole question about how to hear a sermon. And we ought, we ought to think about it for a moment because you've invested the time this morning and many of you invest a lot of time over the weeks and over the months and over the years to listen to sermons. Here's how to hear a sermon. First, uh, per our catechism, attend to it with diligence, preparation, and prayer. In other words, come expectantly. Come expectantly. Come, secondly, by examining. When you hear by the Scriptures, receive the truth with faith, love, meekness, there's our word again, and readiness of mind as the Word of God. And so, so you know, we, we can make better evaluative judgments about how we hear sermons. But, but I, I would suggest that first-person evaluations of sermons are not as helpful as third-person sermons, evaluations of sermons, by which I mean uh, it's, it's nice when, you know, some of you say, hey, I liked the sermon today. And, and I receive that and, and believe all kinds of good things about that. I say, thanks for calling, Mom. A better evaluative question for listening to the sermon is not, I liked. It's, he said. He being, not me, but the Lord. He said. He said. Thirdly, after you've invested the time to listen and to examine, meditate on it, confer on it, take notes, find one takeaway, Talk about the takeaway with someone else. Some of you do this. It's encouraging to hear that you do this. And then fourthly, our forefathers say, hide it in their hearts and bring forth the fruit of it in their lives. God speaks through his word. Word proclamation is essential. And, and the more you believe that, the more you will order your life around that essential experience and moment of hearing it. This is how God through Paul, wants the Thessalonians to be healthy Christians. And as healthy Christians, to grow in love for each other and to grow in love for the world, to not be deterred by opposition, to prioritize as essential the proclamation. We hope you've enjoyed today's sermon podcast. Subscribe to our podcast. And for more information about our church, our values, mission, and ministries, visit npcdublin.org.